between the complying with the Fair Chance Act and how long it's taking for background checks to come back, it's actually on the, the slower side. It's really difficult for employers and businesses to be moving forward. They're trying to hire people and get people in the door, whether it's stores, offices. They're trying to hire and hire talent, but also comply with the requirements under the Fair Chance Act. So making sure they're taking their time and like you mentioned, not moving too quickly or or not violating the law and, and taking too swift of an action to send out their adva- adverse action letter. Um, and But then also making sure that they are hiring real talent. They aren't going to lose anybody who they think actually does make sense and also get their background checks um, It's just been somewhat of a slow process has been what I've been hearing from a lot of employers. Good morning, HR, and Happy New Year. I'm Mike Coffey, president of Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. And this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. Back in November, Corinne Spencer joined me here to discuss recent changes to California employment law. Because of time restraints, we didn't have time to dive into California's recent reinterpretation of the Ban the Box Law, the Fair Chance Act. So Corinne has been gracious enough to come back to the pod to dig into that. Corinne Spencer is a partner at the Los Angeles-based law firm Perlman, Brown, and Wax, and she's chair of the firm's Labor and Employment Practice Group. Corinne counsels and represents clients in employment-related matters, including litigation, risk management, policy preparation, personnel decisions, and training. Welcome back to Good Morning HR, Corinne. Thank you, Mike. I'm happy to be here again. So in October... The California Civil Rights Department's revised regulations implementing the Fair Chance Act took effect. And rather than just focus on those changes, I thought maybe it'd be more helpful to our listeners if we break down the Fair Chance Act's requirements in general and then maybe highlight some of the reinterpretations or the clarifications that they provided. That sounds great. So under the Fair Chance Act, who is an employer what makes somebody an employer and and where does the Fair Chance Act apply, begin to apply to them? Yeah. So before these regulations expanded that definition, the employer was really an entity or a business that had direct employees, five or more employees that were directly serving that business and working, providing labor for them. I think the regulations came in and expanded that definition to include agents, um, and agents acting on behalf of entities who are evaluating an applicant's criminal history on behalf of an employer. So that also includes now staffing agencies and entities obtaining workers from a pool or availability list. It really was meant to expand the requirements of the Fair Chance Act to not just only be limited onto the direct employer who is utilizing the services of their employees, but rather these third parties that are broader and that are assisting some of these businesses and employers with evaluating applicants prior to bringing them in. So when I'm talking to my California-based employers, I think the big change or the big clarification 
was that, yes, you as a staffing agency, whether you're temp to hire or direct placement or you're just leasing employees out, you are definitely now the employer as much as your end user client. Correct. For the purposes, especially for these regulations and applying to them, it's that um, they must comply with these regulations as well, in addition to the direct hire. So your business, your clients that are staffing agencies, they they must also comply with these regulations or us or else both could be in violation of the Fair Chance Act and subject to a charge of discrimination under this the California Civil Rights Department. And well you mentioned the charge of discrimination under the Fair Chance Act that's actually a misdemeanor so it's not just a civil offense, right? Yeah, it can be. It can be. And so you've got to have I think the law applies to five entities with five or more employees. Like in California, we deal with a number, well, across the country, but we deal with a, a number of, of agencies that, that staff, you know, uh, domestic, do domestic staffing, nannies, drivers, things like that for uh, households. And often the households don't have more than five employees, but maybe that agency does or doesn't. How would you figure out where the F- where the FCA applies uh, in a situation like that where the end user may not have more than five. So that's not, you know, they wouldn't normally be applied, or five or more, but they wouldn't be normally applied to the FCA. But on the staffing agency side, they may have five or more or they may have fewer than five. How does that consideration play out? Yeah, I think to take a conservative approach so that you don't have a small business perhaps that walks that line with either under five employees and doesn't want to be facing these types of charges, I think it's important as those smaller businesses that maybe have five or less or one or two employees to be working in connection with these staffing agencies who do have more than five employees working for them that understand that these laws could potentially lead to liability for these smaller businesses. So I think it should be, you know, a combination of transparency between the small business who they may argue this doesn't apply to me. I don't have to deal with the California Fair Chance Act. I want no felons or I want nobody with a criminal history. I have very decent and very reasonable legitimate business um, concerns to demand and require that. And you have the staffing agency who's probably dealing with a very large pool of applicants, larger than who maybe the direct employer might be able to access. But I think in order to take the most conservative approach so that, you know, the end user and the end the direct employer really is not subject to any kind of joint employee joint employer liability on this issue is to is to understand that the these larger staffing agencies should be subject to these requirements and really should probably be utilizing these practices anyhow in all of their screening and conditional offer and hiring processes. And they should be advising these smaller businesses, hey, this is a requirement under the law. There may be an argument. It doesn't com- apply to you. We can deal with that later. I advise you to consult with counsel if you really want to... Go, you know, go down this path of us 
not complying with perhaps the California Fair Chance Act for some of these smaller smaller businesses. But I think that that's the safer practice both for the staffing agency and also for the smaller business so that there's not the liability can be at least addressed up front. So they're not, you know, pointing the fingers at one another down the road, which could very well happen. Yeah, and now would be a really good time. I should have said it up front that to say that none of this is legal advice and I'm not a lawyer and Imperative's not a law firm and I'm especially not your lawyer, but also Corinne's probably not your lawyer. And uh, so don't take anything here other than as advice. This is just us talking about the regulations and our best understanding of them. Everything ought to go through your own counsel and you should really just take care of business on that front end. And then all we're here to do is give you something to talk to your lawyer about. Right, exactly. The legal disclaimer, yeah. if you will. <laughs> that we hear at the beginning of every uh, conference session at, yep. uh, at any HR conference. Yes. So the the Fair Chance Act is, it's basically a ban the box law uh, at the beginning of it. And it's, it's expanded somewhat, but... What you know that that basically means that employers are prohibited until some point to inquire uh, about the, you know from inquiring into the applicant's criminal history. So, what are the history uh, criminal history inquiry rules under the Fair Chance Act for California employers? So, under the California Fair Chance Act, which came into effect in two thousand and eighteen, and that's California Government Code Section one two nine five two. For anybody who wants to look into this further, for for some more literature um, and details, so that came into effect in two thousand and eighteen. And generally speaking, this law prohibits employers from asking about an applicant's criminal history until after a conditional offer of employment has been made to the applicant. So businesses essentially should disregard any type of criminal history. There should be no questions about it on an application process. There shouldn't be anything about it in the job posting. And you should really be wading into any type of inquiry into the criminal background of an applicant until after they've received um, the conditional offer. And and in the, the expanded re- you know, interpretation of the law, they gave examples of like you shouldn't have in your job posting no felons or must have clean record. What about just saying background check required? Do you think that would be a violation if it doesn't prohibit you from applying or doesn't eliminate you, uh, anything like that? It's just it's just kind of giving you a heads up that we are going to do a background check on you. Yeah, I don't think that I don't think that that in of itself is a violation. I think a lot of businesses have their background checks, sometimes drug tests also. That's all part of the onboarding process that applicants who do receive a conditional offer need to comply with. So I don't think there's anything wrong with advising up front that there are there are background checks required as part of the process would be in violation of this law. Because even some of the applications I see or some of the conditional offers, at least, you know, it's safer to include in the conditional offer, I would say, than perhaps in the job posting. But it, it can say, you know, conditional offer subject to um, subject to passing background check and drug screening. Can you have, is it, can, does it have to be conditional solely on the criminal background check um, for instance, New York has that. New York City has that rule. I mean, the only thing that an employer can consider in New York City, I mean, the conditional offer has to be on 
you know, everything else has to be considered except criminal history. But most employers, when they run their criminal background check, they're also running previous employment verifications and education verifications. Is what, do you have any, is there any clarity in the regulations as to what a conditional offer is? Um, I would have to double check on that in terms of if there's any further definitions or distinctions on what can a California employer Mm -hmm. consider in terms of it being defined as conditional offer, because I don't believe that that's been one of the highlighted changes where an employer in California at least really needs to be mindful of changing what can be considered in terms of everything else having been addressed already except for that criminal background check. I have not come across any type of um, any type of clarification on that in regards to these regulations, but I would need to consult them again to confirm. That'll be in their next iteration, I'm sure. But the, <laughs> um, so that's you know that conditional offer. So we we we've we've this person's gone through the interviews. We we think they're the right person for the the the, the job. And so what can we ask about? What kind of, can we ask about, tell me everything you've ever had happen to you with relation to the criminal justice system or, or what are the specific limitations as to what an employer can really consider? You're really looking only at convictions. So employers shouldn't be taking into account arrests without a conviction, sealed or expunged um, convictions, And so it's really convictions that are still on the background check that come up. That's really all that should be that should be considered upon that um, upon that inquiry of when you're running that background, that background check. And so even if somebody is currently in a diversion program, I think we can't, you know, the employer can't consider that. And, you know, you would think. If somebody was on a diversion program for theft and I was putting them in a position where they're handling cash or easily removable, you know, assets, it would be relevant to the decision. But right. the legislature's decided, I guess, you can't consider that information. That's correct. So you can't you can't consider referral to or participation in a pretrial or post-trial diversion program. So that's the other piece. So it's really like arrest not followed by conviction unless in very specific circumstances. And that referral to participation in a diversion program and then convictions that have been sealed, dismissed, expunged, et cetera. And so those but those have not really been um, changes. Those are what mm-hmm. had been the law beforehand. But I think there are a lot of businesses maybe who weren't technically complying with that properly and using, oh, this arrest is outstanding. I'm going to just say we're not giving you the, not, you know, we're revoking the job offer because there was an arrest, outstanding arrest on your record. Thank you. Goodbye. And that's really not complying properly with the California Fair Chance Act. So the consider the considerations that employers, um, what they should be looking at only are, are there convictions on that record that you can stand by? And then that brings us to the individualized assessment, which I think is likely where you were going with now, okay, we have a conviction. And so what can we do with it? If let's say that 
that role that we are considering they are going to be handling cash well we have a lot of we have great concern with somebody who has you know theft on their uh, convicted of crimes that do involve theft for example um and but that is part of this individualized assessment now let's say the position that applicant is applying for has to do with the cashier well there you have really legitimate grounds to revoke that job offer if there's been a if there has been a conviction that has to do with theft that individual is is dealing with money but what if that individual is being is applying for a role as a driver where they aren't necessarily ever handling money now it still goes to their credibility um their concerns that businesses have with you know with trust, complying with authority, et cetera, moral character. Um, so the individualized assessment, I think, becomes where a lot of the employers start running into the challenge because it's not a cut black and white issue as, oh, they're a bad person. They committed a crime. It's Does that crime even have anything to do with the job that they are applying for? And how can you argue that? employer that it does have something to do with the job and that you have very valid concerns that their criminal history takes them out of the running to be a qualified candidate for that role otherwise. And individualized assessment is a term that the EEOC came up with in their 2012 um guidance on the use of criminal history, but it's not a new concept, really. I mean, you know, the green factors have been around since green versus Missouri Pacific. And, you know, and basically, I think the FCA covers that. It's pretty much the green factors, the how long ago the offense happened, the nature of the offense and the relationship to the duties of the job seem to be the main things uh, in the right. uh, in the FCA. Right. Like having individualized assessment really is whether there is a direct and adverse relationship with the specific duties of the job, like you say, that justify denying the applicant the position. That's what it's boiled down to is how, what is that um, direct and adverse relationship and consideration when you also take into account the duties, the specific duties of that job, not just what the company stands for or the company's desires not to maybe have people in their employment who they have concern with who if they're being truthful or if they're you know vi violating laws policies procedures etc if they violated the law i know that there's concern that they may violate other things as well for from an employer standpoint yeah and so you know they want you to really consider its relationship to the dot job and and how re you know and i'm always telling clients that you know that um that five-year-old DWI may not be a concern at all if all this person does is drive a desk, but right. that in even that felony DWI, which in here in Texas is your third DWI, uh, still may not be a concern if all they're doing is you know sitting behind a desk here. But right. that um, but that six month old petty theft case may be of re relevance if they're sitting behind a, a desk operate you know and have access to client accounts or to company you know accounts or assets things like that and so you've got to really look at what did this person do and how is it really relevant to what we're asking them to do here and you know and they want you to look at their whole history too and and you know show how you know 
is this, was this a one-off thing or is this guy just an ongoing knucklehead? You know, does he make these kind of decisions on an ongoing basis? And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you don't absolutely love your current background and drug screening partner, maybe 2024 is the year to explore your options. If so, please reach out to us. We're here for you at imperativeinfo.com. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 129 and enter the keyword FCA. That's F-C-A. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Corinne Spencer. Okay, so we get the criminal history back and we've done our individualized assessment. And and we maybe we got the you know criminal history from asking the applicant about it and they were honest with us about their history, which is right. ideal. And I always tell my clients that you know, that process is the least expensive integrity test you'll ever give the applicant and, you know, give them a chance to tell you what you can legally, you know, have a right to know and see if they told you the truth. And then if they do tell you the truth, then you can do the individualized assessment based on that. But if they don't, then you order the background check and hopefully that's just a lie detector test. We're just confirming that they told us the truth. But then the background check comes back and there's something on it or they told you something and, you, and you're saying this is relevant and, and we, we, are, we may move forward or you know, we may not move forward with this candidate. That's where the, um, this is really where the California is, moves away from the Fair Credit Reporting Act's just pre-trial or pre-adverse action the, uh, letters that we, you know, we routinely send. Right. So what does that process look like? Well, with so I would agree with you in that. Let me start with asking that applicant. Can you tell me about, you know, is there anything on your record or anything in your criminal background history that you would either a need to explain or advise us? And we would like to know because let's that has a result or it has a bearing and a consideration on whether or not we are going to move forward. And that's just with the constraints of the FCA. Only ask about the things that you're allowed to ask as an employer, not not everything. Right. Right, exactly. And and that's also a good recommendation because you can ask them to start working on provide us with anything, even if you have had a background, um, have had a criminal history background, if there's anything that you have that's mitigating or rehabilitating in any sort of manner and documentation, we advise you to start gathering that and working on that sooner rather than later before the background process really picks up and the adverse and the pre-adverse letters start rolling out and the individualized assessment is conducted formally. Um, So that part of what we were walking through our hypothetical in that, in that regard, I think that that's, it's helpful to be upfront with asking for that information and also giving them an opportunity. And, and as the employer, you are getting ahead of any type of the time constraint that might be within it being only five days from when the applicant receives this pre-adverse letter 
for the FCA when you would have um, you would be asking them for any kind of that documentation to of the mitigating factors to explain why they still might be a qualified candidate to to be hired. Um, so the follow up point. Can you remind me at the of the end of your question in terms of where they diverge or what we were working through? Well, yeah, just I guess the the real thing is is what are the consideration? I mean, you know, what what do I have to tell the app? You know, I've got this pre, you know, before I I've got this preliminary decision now is what the, I think the FCA calls it, and uh, so I've, I've you know preliminarily determined we're not going to take this out. You know, we're not going to proceed with this candidate. Um, or it's a current employee and I preliminarily determined we're going to terminate them or something. Um, sure. But I need to, uh, what do I need to tell that applicant before I, I move forward? What, 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 what information do I need to share with them? You need to provide them with a pre-adverse action letter. So it's essentially putting them on notice that I've, we have, discovered some information, whether it was in what you shared with us, but we do have also a background check that now is um, maybe conflicting what they had previously told us. And that is a basis for requiring some kind of an explanation that you had shared with us, A, but it's really B, and maybe they forgot about something that had occurred and they had handled it. And there is a genuine you know, explanation for what happened. But if not, um, we are still required to advise them, you're on notice, this is a pre-adverse action letter, you have, you know, five days from the receipt of this letter to gather any of the information that's going to explain why we should not move forward with revoking your job offer in light of what we found. And so we're going to ask you for, you know, whether it's letters of recommendation or employment that you've had since the time of your conviction, um, all these different types of mitigating factors, perhaps whether or not, you know, you were a victim of domestic abuse or stalking or something else was involved. We're looking for broader rationale for why perhaps that conviction took place and also perhaps why that should not exclude them from still becoming from onboarding. So that's where, you know, I think these revised regulations have really provided more guidance for employers on what to be advising the applicants on information that they can provide in response as as uh, support for why they should still be considered and brought on board and all of that should be really spelled out in um, in those pre-adverse action letters so that the employer knows what they should and could be gathering. And they can also, also be helpful to know what the employer will be considering. Age that the the applicant was when the when the crime took place. Um, how much time has passed since that crime took place. So there's a lot of information I think that's goes into what this individualized assessment process looks like. And in some instances, I think the more transparent you can be with that notice for the employee, the less likely you're going to get tripped up as the employer. But you also can't require them to provide anything at all. You can't demand that they submit anything. So you just have to advise them, put them on notice that you are entitled to submit documentation or anything that you have that can explain away what we found here, this conviction, um, and also 
be so that they are on notice of that, um, that that revocation could be coming forward, but that they aren't required to submit anything. And that, and you mentioned five business days. So that's, you know, they, they get a chance to, to think about it and to gather information, provide it to you. That's not strictly required under the federal law with on the background check side, but, uh, certainly FCA has five days, uh, uh, and, uh, then if they're out of state, I think it's 10 days. And if they're out of the country, it's 20 days. And so, um, so you've got to, you know, uh, you've got to pay attention to those kind of issues as an employer too, because you don't want to, you know, just step on yourself by by you know missing you know by acting too soon or too quickly, right. which goes back to the the thing about um, having those conversations, you know, with the applicant ideally before you ever run the background check. So you know, and you know, and if the applicant tells you, yeah, I got an embezzlement conviction eight years ago, okay, well we can start having that conversation right now. Maybe the employer didn't even have to spend the money on the background check. Maybe the information, you know, that the applicant says is enough to say, okay, we're not going to move forward. Of course, I would tell every employer, if the applicant tells you a story that you like, verify it, <laughs> you know, because, right. you, know, you know, if they were all honest, I'd be out of work. But, <laughs> you know, but if they tell you something that's going to disqualify them right up front, you just saved yourself, you know. Uh, the money on the and the time on the background check, but you've still got that five days, right? I mean, I still got to make this notice, even if it's just what they told me, and I got to wait five days and let them give me the reset, the, the you know, give me their feedback, and maybe they come back with something that was you know that I didn't expect. Right, right, exactly. No, I think that 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 time frame is definitely something to take into consideration. And what I've actually found though in my practice is that. Between the complying with the Fair Chance Act and how long it's taking for background checks to come back, it's actually on the the slower side. It's really difficult for employers and businesses to be moving forward. They're trying to hire people and get people in the door, whether it's stores, offices. They're trying to hire and hire talent, but also comply with the requirements under the Fair Chance Act. So making sure they're taking their time and like you mentioned, not moving too quickly or or not violating the law and, and taking too swift of an action to send out their adva- adverse action letter. Um, and But then also making sure that they are hiring real talent. They aren't going to lose anybody who they think actually does make sense and also get their background checks um, it's just been somewhat of a slow process has been what I've been hearing from a lot of employers that they can't yeah. based on the the difficulty in getting some of the criminal history and convictions from the courts in California in light of them, you know, in light of all the identifiers, you exactly, know, the, courts, the yeah. date of birth. And, exactly. Right. So many of my clients in California are dying because so many of the counties in California have removed date of birth. from the, So if I'm doing a search on John Smith, Jose Gonzalez, anything, I'm going to get a lot of hits. Exactly. I just don't know which ones are my, my, you know, my applicant until I do a lot more research and ask the clerks and the clerks are overrun now with those kind of requests. Right. And so it's taking longer in California. Well, and Illinois, those are the two, those are the two places that are on my red list all the time when I, when we're looking at our performance measurements here, but, but that's what, that's just a reality. So, but anyway, back to the, the actual issue, the, the, so the, the applicant gives us this information. Let's say they, they come up with, 
and I, my, my experience with all these kind of laws around the country is that you almost never get them. The applicant just quietly goes away. Uh, and you're, and you, you know, if you've got a time waiting, you know, it, it expires and you move forward. But, um, but let's say the applicant does produce something, you know, some information, whether it's relevant or not. Um, what is the employer's obligation to really evaluate that? Or can they just say, okay, now he's responded and I can move forward with not hiring him? They do need to demonstrate some consideration for whatever has been submitting submitted as a mitigating, um, you know, mitigating factors or considerations. So the the employer really should almost do a reassessment. So there's like individualized assessment and initial assessment, pre-adverse action letter goes out, the time you have to wait in order for the applicant to submit any documentation. In our example here, someone has submitted information that we're taking into consideration. And it'd be really, it's important to essentially perform a reassessment. We've now received an explanation, a statement from the applicant. They had, you know, committed this crime five years ago. They're now, for example, a mother. I need this job. I need to be able to provide for my family. Here, I've had two other jobs since. I've had no other criminal history since then. Here is a letter from my pastor. I've been attending, um, you know, services and also working on uh, work volunteering. Example of information I have some of that I have seen actually of employees submit mm -hmm. documentation to demonstrate re rehabilitation. And so you want to document that, that at least it has been taken into consideration. It's either whether it's changed the mind of the employer or not, it at least should be a contributing uh, factor. And, and the and documentation is your best friend here in order for a, an employer to show, okay, they sent me this. This is why we still think it's important and it excludes them from moving forward because of X, Y, and Z. Um, and having that in documentation is a really good uh, practice for a business to have and then move forward with your final adverse action letter that the job offer has been revoked and if that's, if that's truly the case. But you do need to be able to demonstrate that there has been consideration and a reassessment performed. And so for both the uh, individualized assessment, the initial one, and then the reassessment, you would, rec would you recommend that an employer have a form that, they, that covers all the bullet points every time or just the manager just write down what his or her thoughts are about this conviction or how would you have them document that? I would recommend a form. Actually, also the Civil Rights Department, they do have some great resources, some sample forms that businesses in California or, or who do work in California can take a look at just to see what is the sample or the example for that the Civil Rights Department would likely be looking for if there was a charge and they come in and say, let me see, this person's claiming that you denied them employment or revoked the job offer after illegally considering their criminal history, and they will want to see what was your process. That's what I've I've run into now is that the Civil Rights Department, let's say we're moving past now the the denial of the job, they've the employer has revoked the job offer, and that that individual goes to the CRD. They file a claim, they file a charge, and now the CRD is investigating that revocation of the of the job offer, they're going to ask for all 
documentations. They want information about the employer. They want to know about your policy on consideration of criminal history. They want to know how many individuals likely you've hired who do have criminal background. Um, So there's a lot of information that's requested and they want to see what you considered in this individual's um, job consideration and in their individualized assessment process. So I would say without at least put it in writing if it's a manager who is looking at everything, but it needs to really be a form is a great idea. And also, um, but an individualized form that's not just using like a sample that you found online, I would say is even better because you want to have some, um, there, there should be some tailoring to your own business and not just utilizing that sample form, but it is a, it is a good place to start off for, from. And the the idea that the uh, employer's going to look at this information, and like you said, our business is going to be different than the next guy's business, and every business is going to be, even if you're in the same industry, you've got different controls in place, you've got different right. levels of supervision, and so I get that question a lot. Well, you've helped a lot of companies write their background screening policy or their criminal history use policy. Uh, can you just give me a copy of you know, a sample policy. And I'm, I won't give them the rope to hang themselves with because every, you know, as soon as they put that in their, in their practice, they're going to do something different. And, uh, you know, because it makes sense in their organization. And, uh, so they need to really develop it pretty cautiously. And, uh, and, and the documentation is, um, should be just, you know, it's, it's HR 101, people management 101. You know, if you're going to make a decision, somebody may not like, always document it and don't document right. it after you get the complaint. Don't try to exactly. go back and create it. Yeah. Do it real exactly. time contemporaneously time yes. stamp it, you know, do all of that. Exactly. Do it in real time. Have a, have detailed support for why you were making that decision when you did make that decision. And even if an employer, I think made a mistake or it's better for it to be in writing at that time for them to explain why they were, um, why they made the decision when they did. And California is still an at-will state, but it, it doesn't force you to have to hire these people you don't want to hire. You just can't go about it in an illegal way or in violation of, for example, here, the Fair Chance Act. So one last question, which may be a French goodbye, but let's see, let's try it. Um, I'm a, let's say I'm a Texas employer and I'm, I'm, I'm going to hire somebody for Texas, for a Texas role, but I have a California applicant. How does the how does the FCA apply to an employer completely out of state, no fingerprint, no footprint in California, other than the fact that this applicant has applied and and is based in in California? So, in in your hypothetical, with the work they be doing, they'd still be sitting in California. Uh, and... No, let's let's say that we're gonna they're they're gonna relocate for this job. Oh, the... I, yeah, yeah. The, okay. the job is physically located out of California. Um, that's a great question. I mean, because there's arguments that the employer may not constitute the definition under the, under the Fair Chance Act to argue if they, I I would caution the Texan employer to have to comply with the California uh, Fair Chance Act, because oftentimes there are other types of 
laws, for example, like the Fair Employment Housing Act, et cetera, it doesn't matter necessarily where those employees are are sitting. If you have more um, em- employees, which your Texas business, it sounds like, mm-hmm. would, would need to be compliant because the California laws would still pertain to that process of hiring or considering for hire that applicant. But I think there are some interesting arguments that you could be able to not not have to comply with the California's Fair Chance Act because that employer does not necessarily fall under the definition. Yet, um, on the broad sense, they would under just like they have if they have more than five employees, if they are you know they are needing to comply with and that applicant is in California then having to go through the applicant the California's requirements on the consideration process for hiring and if you were but and if you're going to relocate them to Texas um yeah I think that's tricky I mean I think the safer bet is to is to comply with California Fair Chance Act but the likelihood though of you know, whatever liability that there might be and whether California really has like jurisdiction over the issue. And I think it, I I think it's too hard to tell because they could, if let's say they get denied that, they get denied the position, you're Texas, you're a Texas employer, you are trying to hire a California employee, you go through the background check process, you deny them the position because of something found on the California's on the their conviction background, and they could go to the CRD and file a charge that I'm a California em- potential employee. I was applying for this business that's doing at least um, at least scouting for talent in California, and so there's an argument, and these still may ultimately end up as a business in Texas having to defend. Uh, this type of action. So, so is it with everything? Uh, go talk to your legal counsel exactly. before you do anything. Wow, that's a yeah. But just think about how many states and even municipalities have their own fair chance hiring act. And, right. and if you're if you're a Texas only or an Oklahoma or a Wisconsin or whatever only employer, and you but you are opening your doors to candidates to relocate. I mean, certainly I, I've got no. I can't argue that, you know, if you're now a California employer, if this guy is sitting in his living room working for you, uh, you know, there's, there's no doubt there, I think, but right. what a, what a, what a headache it could be, uh, for multi-state, you know, small multi-state, you know, or not even a multi-state recruiter, uh, you know, somebody who's recruiting for, in talent from other places, but bringing them into the state. Right. Kind of, uh, it could be a real headache, but well, I mean, I think we've, done a, a, a pretty good job of covering what the Fair Chance Act's ex, uh, expectations are of employers in California, at least. Uh, any last thoughts about that that you think we should make sure we, we pass on to employers? I think it's just, a, just a, ri- a reminder and encouragement about the importance of the individualized assessment and training your HR team or the hiring managers and um as part of any of your businesses to really understand this exercise that they need to go through and not just have black or white issues on denying candidates. It's really more of um, 
the more detailed exercise that I think employers need to recognize that they need to invest in training for their HR personnel and the hiring managers so that they don't violate this law in some of those initial onboarding decisions. Yeah, and I think that's a big part of it is 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 it's usually not going to be your HR people that get you in trouble. It's going to be those hiring managers who have, you know, who aren't either up to speed or or stumble and just, you know, ask the wrong question and right. um, think they're being clever or helpful. And uh, and so you really drive home that we've got to we got to train them too. Well, that is all the time we have. I, I appreciate you coming back on the, on the podcast, Corinne. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. And thank you for listening. You can comment on this episode or search our previous episodes at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and you can reach him at robmakespods.com. And thank you to Imperatives Marketing Coordinator, Marianne Hernandez, who keeps the trains running on time. And I'm Mike Coffey, as always. Don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week. And until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.